Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we're going to talk to Jean-Marie Laskus, author of Concussion, the story of how Dr. Bennett Amalu discovered the connection between football and the condition known as CTE, which is caused by the normal repetitive actions of playing the game of football and Dr. Amalu's battle to get the NFL to listen. This is, of course, going to be a movie coming out Christmas Day starring Will Smith as Dr. Amalu and Luke Wilson as Roger Goodell. We're also going to talk about why Serena Williams was not only the right choice to be the Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year Award, but why she just might be the Muhammad Ali of our times. And we're going to give out the Just Stand Up Award. But first, Jean Marie Laskus and the story of David versus Goliath, a.k.a. Dr. Bennett Amalu versus the National Football League. If you continue to deny my work, the world will deny my work. But men... Your men continue to die. Their families left in ruins. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Um, the story really does start in Pittsburgh, where, where you work and where Dr. Amalu was working. And it starts with him doing the autopsy of Steelers Hall of Famer Mike Webster, who dies after living in a van, tasing himself to relieve pain, using super glue to keep his rotting teeth in his mouth. I mean, it's, it's a horror story. And I wanted to ask you, as somebody who is a longtime person in Pittsburgh, what do you remember the local response being? to Mike Webster's death and to the conditions with which he found himself. I wasn't yet a, a Steeler fan at that point, but you, it was inevitable that you heard about this and the, the sort of sorrow of what happened to Iron Mike. He was such a legend. I mean, I moved to Pittsburgh after he was a legend, but it was just ubiquitous to hear about his sort of status and that whole Super Bowl era in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And, um, when he died, I think it was really no one. I don't think people wanted to focus on the crazy part. You know, mm. it was like, oh, we didn't want to say anything bad about him. Right. So, so there wasn't really a focus on the mental health aspect of how this incredibly competent athlete who was in a leadership position on one of the most storied teams in sports history found himself in such a horrific predicament. We certainly knew about it. The media covered it, but you didn't ask why. And I think that was the weird, that was the strange thing that Bennett Omalu did that took everyone off, you know, kind of caught everyone off guard. Like, what happened? How did this 50-year-old man end up going crazy? You know, he died of a heart attack, but but he is, was crazy. And Bennett really wanted to figure out why and, like, what happened. Talk to us a little bit about the character of Dr. Amalu as you know him. What is it about him? What is it about his history that made him actually ask the questions which seem like they were there to be asked, yet nobody was asking? What was it about Dr. Amalu that compelled him to say, wait a minute, 50-year-old men don't end up tasing themselves to relieve pain? What's happening here? He was knew nothing about American football. He was a came from Nigeria. Um, was schooled out, you know, many, many, many degrees. He was kind of like this sheltered kid who kept going to school, a medical school at sixteen. Got here in this country in his early twenties, and you know, to sort of like become the best version of himself. He was striving to be the best 
neuropathologist he could be. And so when he gets a, a body on the slab and here's a someone who went crazy, he wants to know why. He's not factoring in the football thing. He's not thinking about what everyone else is thinking about that's so obvious to them. He's thinking about what's obvious to him. Something must be wrong with this brain. Mm. What, what, what's the irony here of somebody who clearly is attempting to embody the striving of what it means to be an American immigrant to achieve their best within the confines of our system, while at the same time uh, running up against all these roadblocks and being accused of actually anti-Americanism because he's attacking this sport that so many people in this country hold so dear. Honestly, it took him so long to even understand that people perceived him that way. He was not attacking a sport. He he really wasn't. He had nothing against football or and the NFL, certainly, he didn't even know enough to be against the NFL. And when he learned about the NFL, he thought he actually was doing them a favor. Honestly, mm. he was bringing them this research. So for them to come back and, um, you know, sort of, well, immediately they demanded a retraction um, and say, you know, said, your research is invalid. We don't even believe you. I, I, it just, he, he was dumbfounded. He, he, he was dumbfounded. Why, why, why are they doing this? They're terrified of you. Bennett Amalu is going to war with a corporation that has 20 million people on a weekly basis craving their product, the same way they crave food. <laughs> the NFL owns a day of the week, the same day the church used to own. Now it's theirs. They're very big. He expected them to be responsive and grateful for him finding out, well, wait a minute, that there's something actually wrong with what your sport does to the human mind. Correct. Wow. So in, in the big picture, like how do you feel like the NFL um, has responded uh, to Dr. Amalu, like dating back to 2009 to today? I mean, would you say cheers, jeers, or somewhere in the middle? Oh, my gosh. Jeers and nowhere close to the middle. They marginalized him systematically. They did it deliberately of all of the unpaid scientists who were saying that there was this this severe issue going on with concussions in, in their players. But with Bennett in particular, just by demanding retraction to his work, not inviting him to any of their so-called, you know, concussion summits, they really just they just pretended he didn't exist. Do you think it was easier for them to pretend that he didn't exist because he was a Nigerian immigrant, because he did come from this forensic lab in Pittsburgh? Yes. Uh, do you think that, that that's one of the things that compelled them to be like, we can push this guy to the margins and no one will really notice? I think it was easy for them. He was not, you know, listen, he was, even when he did his research, he wasn't backed by a university. He wasn't backed by government grants. He did this all personally. You know, this was all funded by himself. It was his own kind of, you know, uh, just a scientific puzzle he was going to figure out. So they didn't have that kind of, you know, oh, this is, you know, big cheese scientist that we're going to pay attention to out of respect. It was, it was more like, well, look, if we forget about him, maybe everyone else will. Now, the NFL's response to, to this coming film is very bizarre to me because it's like on the one hand, you hear them say things like, well, we welcome all discussions about this and we welcome the opportunity to show the American people all the remarkable steps we've made since 2009 to make the game safer, blah, blah, blah. Yet it's also been widely reported that they're setting up a whole kind of PR counter ops operation to go after the film, inaccuracies in the film, inaccuracies in your book. I mean, 
it's in, I spoke to the head of the NFL Players Association, who is himself dumbfounded that the NFL is taking this approach to the film and to the book. What advice would you give Roger Goodell with the coming, what I think is going to be storm that this film is going to cause? My advice to, I don't know if it would be Goodell so much as the team owners, if you want good PR, stop confronting this head on and saying that it doesn't exist and denying it and trying to poke holes in science that's been around now, not just since 2009, but actually more like 1994 when some of the early research was done. They've, mm-hmm. they've had the same, same, same argument. Oh, we don't have enough. We don't have enough information yet. And we're making the game safer. And meantime, more guys are killing themselves. I would say to them, Okay, what if you took a different approach here? And what if you instead decided to like take care of these guys before they kill themselves? Like open a care center at a hospital for these guys so that you can so that you can so they can live out with their retirement and dignity rather than in cars tasing themselves or rather than like um you know, Dave Durison who's yeah. puts himself in the in the stomach and leaves a note, "Please look at my brain." I think they should say, "Here's some care centers." I think that would be a fantastic PR move. You know, one of their talking points, and I'm sure you're very aware of this, is that your book, this film, uh, Hollywood, is part of a kind of ideological-driven war on football. And I want to know how you respond to that narrative, that this is not about science, but this is about people who morally object to football and are using science as kind of a Trojan horse to get people to stop playing and watching. Okay, I, that's so easy to respond to since I wrote the book and the original article. And I, I can tell you flat out, I love football. I love the game. I love the Steelers. I would like nothing more for that than for that game to be able to continue. But I feel that I, as a fan, and the players on that field, I feel that we have all been duped by the NFL, who has not told us the truth, who has hidden from us the truth that they had at least since 2005 when they rejected Bennett's findings. Mm -hmm. They have known what's going on and they have tried to divert our eyes and I've been complicit in this as a fan. I'm watching this stuff, not knowing. It reminds me so much of the tobacco industry in the 70s and the 80s and later. And I would think back when I quit smoking, it wasn't because it was bad for me, it was because the tobacco industry duped me. And I feel so much of the same of that. Let me ask you a compare and contrast about that because it's I've often used the tobacco cigarette analogy for football, particularly when they talk about making it safer because it is sort of like, can you really make a safe cigarette no matter how big the filter, no matter if it's an American spirit or something? It's like there, there is no such thing. But what's so interesting is that if you ask like an old smoker who maybe is dying at age 65, do you wish you'd never seen a cigarette? They'll almost certainly say yes. But when you ask an old football player, do you wish you'd never played the game? More often than not, they'll say they have no regrets about playing, even if they don't want their own children to play. They say they don't have regrets about playing. What, what do you think is behind that, the psychology of people who go through hell through this game yet still don't regret having played? Well, I think that there's this culture, of course, that they're superstars. We idolize that sense of fame and glory, of course, of course, of course. Though I will add here that you're not going to get that response from the guys who, you know, who are slipping into dementia. Right. And I've talked, you know, I've spoken to a number of them and I've just went to a funeral of one, two, about two or three weeks ago. 
you will not get that response from them. They, they will say instead, I didn't know I was signing up for this. You know, it's mm-hmm. one thing to, to sign up for something that I might no longer have knees, but to no longer have my dignity as a human being, you know, my brain, that's another matter. So I, I'm not saying we get that response from everyone. We are talking to Jean-Marie Laskus, the author of the book Concussion, which is becoming the concussion movie on Christmas Day, starring Will Smith, Oscar bait all around it. And you know, Will Smith, of course, plays Dr. Bennett Omalu, and another of the main characters in the film is Alec Baldwin as Dr. Uh, Julian Bales. Look, the League has kept everyone in the dark, and you turned on the lights and gave their biggest boogeyman a name. What's happening now? What you think they're doing to you? That's nothing. Dr. Bales and Dr. Amalu are now in a, a public debate about whether or not a young kids should play before the age of 18 with Dr. Amalu, as I'm sure you saw writing in the New York Times, that they should not. And Dr. Bales, who is now the medical advisor for Pop Warner Football, saying that he is happy with young people playing football, that there's no evidence that it hurts young people. Uh, and that he finds the research on that very specious. Um, as someone who's been following the story, like, what, what do you make of this d- uh, very public debate? It's so fascinating to me, because, especially because I know both of them so well, um, and I know that their history together, you know, they, they, they have helped each other. Uh, and so here now they are separating in their positions. I think Bennett is taking this strong putting the brakes on statement for all of us to push against. That's the most extreme we've heard. Ban football for anyone under age 18. Don't play it until you can make your own your own decision as an adult. And that is now Bales with, you know, he's conflicted with this uh, Pop Warner situation. He obviously can't stand behind that. I think that his stance that we don't yet have enough information and we don't yet have enough research. Of course, we don't. We haven't looked at, at little kid brains, so we don't know. However, we have been saying that since 1984, that we don't yet have enough information in this in this field. And so why do we keep erring on the side as if, eh, no problem? I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, and the, the we don't have enough information argument is a bizarre one to me because if we took that approach to everything that we assumed was unsafe— then my goodness, I mean, then we should just say people should do everything. When, when is enough information, basically, would right. be my and question. We, and we also know that this is a – one thing they, the science does show is that this is a disease that there's a cumulative effect. So when does the accumulation start? Nobody knows. We haven't been able to determine that yet. The science is not there for that yet. But are we going to assume that the accumulation doesn't start when you're when you're a little kid? Where's the science to support that? As a parent, I think I'd be pretty scared to just say, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's there yet. Mm. Where I assume you're going to stay on the concussion beat. Where does this story go? And are you working on anything in particular with regards to head injuries in football right now? But also, where do you see this story going in 10 years, 20 years? I wonder what happens to the sport. I wonder if we're headed, and I hope not actually, but I wonder if we're headed to, you know, sort of like what happened with boxing. Because if you if you follow the history of this trajectory where we're going now with brain injury in football, the history is the same, exactly the same what happened with boxing. So if history is repeating itself, we're seeing the end of football in the same way that 
boxing is now sort of a marginalized sport. It's a sport for, you know, people that we seem to not mind that they volunteer to get themselves bashed in the head. Um, I, I wonder what's going to happen if if players no longer want to play. They do like Chris Borland does, and they retire right off the bat because it's not looking like such a good, good thing for the, the future of their, their heads. And um, do we have then a sport just for people on the margins who have no other way of getting out of poverty? I don't know. That seems sad. Yeah. And, and what about you for your work? Where are you following this story now individually? I'm following a bunch of players. I'm really interested in the families of the players who are suffering because those stories have not been told. And I, I only told one of them so far, which was Fred McNeil and Tia McNeil, the Minnesota Vikings player. And what surprises me with the players and the families is I just can't imagine that they still don't know how little awareness there is about what's going on that has gotten into the, the minds of the players and their families. So I'm interested in that. Like, when is this story going to penetrate not just the public, but these people? And I think the film is going to blow up the discussion in a huge way. What, what are your hopes for the film? That is exactly what my, my hope is for it, because I feel like this is the conversation America keeps not having. We keep almost having it, and then we get blinded by our love for the game again. And so then we don't have it. You know, we, it's just an elephant in the room. The best thing that could happen is that we all, we all look at ourselves as fans and, and start wondering, are we okay with this? Because until we start asking those questions of ourselves, nothing's going to happen. The NFL is huge. It's a $10 billion industry. And we're trusting them. And I'm saying, wait a second. Let's, let's take a look at this. Ms. Laskus, thank, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. Last question, you know, Anne Rice famously hated Interview with a Vampire. Uh, a lot of authors have not liked the way their books have been translated onto screen. I, I give you the, the Siskel and Ebert question. You've seen the film. Thumbs up, thumbs down. What do you think of Concussion? Oh, most definitely thumbs up. It's really good. It's really powerful. It's really strong. It doesn't tiptoe around its claims. It's accurate. It's not documentary, but it's accurate in the beats of Bennett's story. And it shows what this guy did. Mm. So, so you're no Anne Rice. That's what I'm Not hearing. in this case, no. Okay. <laughs> that was Jean Marie Laskus, author of the book Concussion, out on Random House, uh, available where all finer books are sold. And now we're going to go to the part of the show where I read something I wrote in the nation, but do it in my own way with my own voice. It's my own take. It's time for me to talk about what to me is one of the coolest things to happen this past week. And that is Serena Williams being named the sports person of the year by Sports Illustrated. If you want to read along, uh, you can find a link in the description for this podcast. So Serena Williams was named Sports Person of the Year, which seems dead on considering that this was a tennis season where John McEnroe called her the greatest female athlete of the last century. But I actually think that kind of praise even understates all that Serena has become. 
She is our Michael Jordan. She is our Jim Brown. She is our Babe Ruth calling his shots. She is Neo, no longer content to dodge bullets, but understanding how to stop them. Serena is that rare athlete who has not only mastered her sport, she's harnessed it. But Serena Williams is more than just our 21st century MJ. If we take a break from defending her, which her detractors do not make easy, it becomes increasingly clear that she is also perhaps our Muhammad Ali. Now that's sacrilege in some circles, and understandably so. Ali risked years in federal prison to stand up to an unjust war, becoming the most famous draft resistor in history. Please remember that the man born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. was a boxer who inspired the first Pan-Africanist stirrings of Malcolm X, the anti-war stance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the very mental survival of a prisoner halfway around the world named Nelson Mandela. There is and there will never be anyone like Ali, without question. But this is also not the 1960s, and there will also never be anyone like Serena. Serena Williams is our Ali, and before defending that statement, I want to break down what, in my view, makes Ali Ali. To be in Muhammad Ali's tradition of athletes, there are three basic boxes one would need to check. The first is that the sports person in question would need to be among the greatest in their field. As mentioned above, Serena more than checks that box. Secondly, one would have to be polarizing in a way that speaks to issues beyond the field, thrilling some people politically and enraging others with every triumph. Similarly, a loss would feel like more than just a game to their fans, more like a punch in the gut. And lastly, to even be in this conversation, one would have to not just represent or symbolize a political yearning, but actually stand for something and risk their commercial appeal through their political courage. Serena doesn't only check these boxes, she has, I would argue, confronted and overcome even more obstacles than even the great Muhammad ever had to face. Symbolically, the very audacity of Serena Williams, a black woman from Compton who has owned a country club sport with style, flair, and the occasional leopard suit, is without comparison. She is peak Tiger Woods in skill, but cut with Ali's transgressive style, the equivalent of the champ telling the craggy, macho world of boxing that he was so very pretty. But not even Ali had to achieve in an atmosphere as inhospitable as Serena's athletic setting. This is about the very particular intersectional oppression she has faced as a black woman. This iconic body she proudly inhabits, her shape, her curves, her musculature, has been the subject of scorn regardless of the results. Even at his most denigrated, Ali's loudest detractors conceded that his physical body was a work of athletic sculpture. As a man, a black man, he was objectified with a mix of admiration, longing, and envy in the ways black male athletes have always been seen since the days of plantation sports. It was his mind and mouth that truly made him threatening. People wanted Ali to shut up and box for years before finally stripping him of his title. But as that phrase implies, they still wanted him to box, not Serena. Instead, she has had to face a tennis world that has made it clear in tones polite and vulgar that it would be so nice if she wasn't there. But she has shut them all up with the same wicked power that defines her game. She, like Martina Navratilova before her, has forced sports writers and fans to confront what a female athlete's body can look like, and they have often responded as terribly as we would both expect and fear. 
While overwhelmingly male sports media members and many tennis fans mocked and continue to belittle her appearance, Williams brushes them off like so much dust on her shoulder. The greater her stature, the more pathetic they look. The higher her profile, the lower they seem. In Ali's day, William F. Buckley saw it as his white man's burden to tear him down. Serena has Buckley's media spawn attempting the same, and they look just as small, just as pathetic. Then there are her explicit politics. This is not the 1960s, and there isn't a mass movement to deify Serena Williams the way there was one to lift Ali when the world was insistent upon his destruction. But that only makes the stand she has chosen to take all the more remarkable. In 2000, Serena Williams pulled out of the Family Circle Cup in South Carolina in solidarity with the NAACP's call to boycott over the flying of the Confederate flag atop the statehouse. After her Wimbledon victory this year, she spoke about the recent Mother Emanuel church murders in Charleston, pledging to continue to have faith, continuing to believe, continuing to be positive, continuing to, quote, help people to the best of my ability, end quote. She has also been a voice for women's pay equity in the sport, backing her sister Venus's powerful push for economic justice in a sport that one time paid women with bouquets of flowers. Most compellingly, as the Black Lives Matter movement has attempted to focus the nation on both police violence and the injustices that surround mass incarceration, Serena has chosen to partner with the Equal Justice Initiative, an organization that fights for prisoners' rights amid the racism that pervades the criminal justice system. In a move as audacious as it was affecting, she even tied her return to Indian Wells, a tournament she had boycotted after being showered with racist catcalls in 2001 to the raising of money for the organization. Using boxing as a platform for these kinds of politics amidst the 1960s was certainly legendary, but doing it in 2015 in the world of tennis? It's simply above and beyond, like clearing a hurdle while wearing cement shoes. If anything, the difference between Serena and Ali that's the greatest is the absence of that mass social movement to elevate her presence and push the non-believers to see what we have in front of us. Muhammad Ali went from despised to beloved because a mass black freedom struggle and anti-war movement took him as their own. He became more than an athlete. He became a social question. Similarly, a movement fighting for Black Lives Matter and gender justice, a movement of struggle that includes the young women of Ferguson, Bree Newsom, who took down the Confederate flag in Columbia, South Carolina, and everyone fighting fiercely to reshape this country, has the potential to deliver Serena Williams to even greater heights. She is also becoming a social question, because she represents in so many ways the questions that people are facing in their daily lives. In other words, she poses this very sharp interrogation to the viewer. When you see her serve, her volley, and her physical self, when you hear her words, her concerns, her causes, which side are you on? This remarkable athletic force of nature or those trying and failing to tear her down? After her Wimbledon victory, Serena Williams was asked which athlete she admired the most. She responded quickly and said, It's Muhammad Ali. Not for his boxing, but for what he stood for outside the ring. For years, people have asked who would be the next Muhammad Ali. If we dare to lift our heads, it'll be clear that she is right in front of us. In the years to come, we may need to change the question and ask, who will be the next Serena Williams?
Just Stand Up Award this week, it goes to all the members of Dubs Nation, fans of the Golden State Warriors, whose record-setting streak to start the 2015 NBA season just ended last Saturday in Milwaukee. I guess I just wanted to give a shout-out to how the Warriors fans from the Bay are discussing their team, because it's fascinating to me. Because when you hear them debate and discuss what makes the Dubs so special, you hear that... East Bay influence when they say that the team is like socialism in practice. This is a team that shares the ball. This is a team where unheralded people like Draymond Green have emerged to be all-stars. This is a team that embodies the best about the beautiful game. And yet we also have to say this is also a team that embodies individual excellence. Because when we're talking about Steph Curry, we're also talking about somebody who's arguably having the greatest season the NBA has seen since Michael Jordan. Hell, who's arguably having the greatest season the NBA has ever seen since Wilt Chamberlain. He's somebody who has turned the three-point shot into a Dominique Wilkins windmill slam dunk. And I love this discussion because if we're talking about sports as a metaphor for a better kind of world, let's remember that these things are not counterposed. We can all work together. We can all pass the ball. We can all be as one. Yet we can also have room for individual excellence. We can also have room for the flourishing of the individual as it takes place within a growing and advancing whole. So I think the Golden State Warriors are everything that we want this world to be symbolically because it creates the space for a Draymond Green. It creates the space for a Festus Azili. It creates the space for a team that effectively does not need a coach. And it creates the space for Steph Curry to amaze the world. Hey, Steph Curry, if you're out there, you have an open invite to come on the show whenever you like. That's going to do it for this week. You can contact me, Dave Zirin, at edgesports at slate.com. You can contact me also through Twitter, at Edge of Sports. Please listen to the past shows, terrific interviews, Chuck D, John Legend. Last week's show, the most listened to one ever with Craig Hodges and Samaki Walker, with Samaki Walker talking about his experiences playing in Syria. We are out of here. Thank you, Jean-Marie Laskus. Peace. <laughs>